a sort of mini-series within that larger series on the patriarchs, a mini-series called God's Man at War. God's Man at War. Uh, so we're looking at this account in Genesis 14 of uh, Abraham going to war with Canaanite kings in order to save his nephew Lot. So if you remember, we focused last week on who Abraham was fighting against, who Abraham fought against. He was fighting against four Canaanite kings led by Kedor Laomer, uh, the king of Elam. And his battle was a physical battle against human kings. Uh, I mean, you've probably all seen um, some form of documentary or movie representation of ancient warfare. And to think about it, you, you just have to realize, I mean, what Abraham did was, there was nothing elegant about it. <laughs> it was take out a sword and go into hand-to-hand -hand combat and kill people spilling blood. <laughs> there was nothing pretty about it, right? It was brutal. It was ancient warfare, right? It was ancient warfare. It was up close. It was personal. It was very human. It was, it was intensely physical uh, against other human beings. Now, having acknowledged that that was Abraham's battle, that Abraham was fighting as God's man at war in a physical battle against physical kings, the, the New Testament we saw last week speaks to us about the fact that our battle is spiritual. We're not taking up the sword and chopping at each other and hacking at people. We are battling against the world and the flesh and the devil. These are our enemies. We talked about the fact that these three great enemies uh, are, are specifically assigned to members of the Trinity. That the Father is opposed by the world, that the Son is opposed by the devil, and that the Holy Spirit who lives within you is opposed by your flesh. And how many of you know you've got a little flesh left in you? How many of you have ever felt the war of what you want versus what the Holy Spirit wants? Amen? There's that, that struggle that is there. And you know, right, what, what the New Testament tells us is that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh, and that these two are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do what you want to do. In other words, get used to the fact that as a believer, there's going to be part of you that's going to be thoroughly dissatisfied. You follow the spirit, your flesh is going to be whimpering. You follow the flesh, and the spirit is going to be disappointed, right? That this is the, this is the conflict that goes on inside of us. I hope uh, you took the time to read Genesis 14 this week. We did send out an email. Please be reading Genesis 14. It's always uncomfortable for me when I sit up here and don't say, we're going to read this specific text. I prefer to do that. But it's an entire chapter. We are going to read a small portion of the chapter here in just a moment. We're going to focus this morning not on, uh, on who we're fighting against. That was last week. Today, we're going to focus on who the man of God fights for, who he fights for. Last week, who he fights against. This week, who he fights for. The answer is given to us in Genesis 14, verses 12 through 16. So if you turn there, I'm going to read that much of, of this chapter. Genesis 14, verses 12 through 16. And they also took Lot. Now, the they is the four kings that we're talking about. These four kings, before Abraham went to war of them, uh, against them, these four kings had duked it out with five other Canaanite kings. It had been four kings versus five kings. The four kings won. And when the four kings won, one of the five kings that they defeated was the king of Sodom. When they defeated the king of Sodom, they took Lot, who was living in Sodom, they took him and his possessions into captivity. They took him captive, right? And so Abraham goes to war with these four kings that had taken Lot. That's the they, these four kings. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. 
Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, who and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. So that's the story of, of Abram's, uh, Abraham's fight. Notice that, the, that what he was fighting for was his nephew Lot. He's going to war to rescue his nephew Lot. Now, along with Lot comes, as the text just told us, Lot's possessions and Lot's people. Right? All of Lot's possessions and all of Lot's people. His possessions, the women, and the rest of the people. They're all rescued when Lot is rescued. So Abraham is going to war for his, his nephew Lot. More about that in just a second. But just, just consider, just consider these, these, these two thoughts as we put ourselves in the context of what it meant for Abraham to go to war in order to rescue his nephew Lot. Thought number one. It's interesting in this story, if, if we can skip ahead a little bit, if we can skip ahead, we've already dealt with the subject of Lot choosing to go live in Sodom, right? He's, he's chosen to live in Sodom. When Abraham rescues Lot, Lot goes back to Sodom. Now, on one hand, you can say that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. That was home, right? That's where his house was. That's where his home was. So he goes back to the place that he that he was captured from. But how many of you, how many of you, how many of you just think there, feel like there's this question that kind of overhangs Lot's life, something like, what are you doing in Sodom? I mean, is that a reasonable question, do you think? Well, what are you doing in Sodom? What are you doing in Sodom? All right, let me just throw this out there. Just follow me for a second in ways that I think our minds humanly wander. When we're reading scripture, and interacting, please hear this. When you're reading these stories, don't just read them as ancient stories. Make friends out of these people. Get to know them. Maybe put yourself in their circumstances and ask yourself, what would I do in their place? What would I do if I had been in their shoes? I just wonder this as a possibility. How many of you believe that God speaks to us at times through our circumstances? Do you believe that? How many, of you, how many of you would acknowledge that sometimes you're trying to discern the voice of the Lord in a certain set of circumstances and it's not always 100% clear? Is that, is that only me or is that anybody else, right? Not 100% clear. But how many believe God does speak to us in this way through our circumstances? Can I ask you how many of you have ever been in a situation and sometime later on you just kind of slapped yourself upside the head and said to yourself, how could you miss what God was trying to say unto you? It was so obvious. Right? So obvious. Seems so obvious. All right? Let me just ask you this as a curiosity. Since you and I are sitting here, and we've got this overview of Bible knowledge, we know the, kind of, the, the whole story of Lot, how many of you have ever thought to yourself, I wonder if this event in Lot's life, when he's taken captive and he's taken out of Sodom, and Abraham comes to rescue him. I wonder if this was a kind of a, a God-warning shot across the bow telling him, Sodom's not for you, buddy. You ever thought that? Like, maybe you ought to get the hint, Sodom's not the best place for you. How about it? <laughs> you know, maybe upon reflection, uh, Lot should have thought to himself, God, are you trying to tell me something here? You're trying to tell me something about my life in Sodom? Maybe I shouldn't go back there. So far, this hasn't worked out great. Now listen, there's a ton that we don't know about what's going on in Lot's life at this point. 
We don't know to what degree Sodom has already begun to affect his, his wife, his children. We know later on that becomes part of the story. We don't know what things Lot may have already been seeing. It might very well be that Lot was already seeing warning signs in his family and that this event should have been like just obvious, duh, get out, right? On the other hand, maybe not. I don't know, right? I'm not there. I don't know. As I read the story, I wonder about this. So let's at, least, let's at least acknowledge this much. How many of you would agree that learning from hindsight is usually easier than discerning with foresight? Right? Learning from hindsight is usually easier. I say usually because I just want to leave some margin of error for those visionaries among us that maybe are better than this than others. But I think as human beings, our natural tendency is to learn from hindsight more easily than we discern with foresight, right? And, and part of that is just the reality of the fact that we are creatures of time and that we don't know tomorrow. There are always things that we just don't know about tomorrow. There's always these unknowable factors we can't foretell the future. Therefore, it's not always easy to know what I should do now considering, listen, one of the things that I've discovered about myself is that usually when I get stuck in trying to make a decision, it's because I'm trying to be a prophet and foretell the future. I'm, I'm stuck now because I'm trying to figure out what's going to be tomorrow. And unfortunately, God just doesn't usually share that information with me. Right? And, and at some point, I have to start doing what I tell my children to do. Hey, how about you just make the best decision you can? Trust that the Lord will lead you through it. If you make a mistake, he'll bring you back. You didn't, you didn't act rebelliously. You didn't act sinfully. You made the best decision that you have, that, that you could. Then you put your heart before God and say, God, you're going to teach me through this. And I'll do my best to obey as you guide me. Right? How about we just take a deep breath, make a decision, and move on, right? Move on. Keep going. Well, let's not get too hard on, on Lot here, but let me just, I, I want to add this one little piece to this, to this story. If I were to ask you, and don't answer this out loud, but if I were to ask you out loud your general impressions of Lot, man of God, Man of the flesh, is he someone that you would want to recommend that your children emulate? What would, what would you do with Lot? I think it's interesting just to point out that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Lot is referred to as a righteous man. He's referred to as a righteous man. Sorry, I'm forgetting to do this this morning. He's referred to as a righteous man. Which begs the question, do we really know much of anything? <laughs> right? I mean, in one sense, it kind of does beg the question, do I see things the way God sees things? Because I got to tell you, if I had started in the book of Genesis and was reading the Bible for the first time, and I had read through the Bible, just reading through, reading through, I would have arrived at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, and read that verse as a shocker. It would be a shocker to me. Because my conclusion about Lot was, well, I'm not saying he was a completely bad guy, he just made some really bad decisions. He just did some things that he shouldn't have done. Yeah. Chose selfishly above Abraham, went to Sodom, lived in Sodom, you know, taken out as a captive one time. Maybe he should have learned a lesson and went back there again a second time, right? You just look at this and you go, I don't know. Not, not, not the best, not, not, the, not the guy that I would want to recommend as someone whose life you emulate, but the scripture makes a statement that he was a righteous man whose soul was vexed by the things that he saw. Now listen to this. One of the easiest things in the world to do is to look at somebody and say, hey, Lot, if you're so righteous and you're so bothered by everything you see, how about you just get out? 
How about you just get out? Now, I, I'm going to tell you, I, I think this is true. A lot of us, if we had been, many of us, if we had been there asking those questions, it would have, I, I think, many of us would have struggled with the idea in our hearts, Lot, if you claim to be so righteous and the wickedness of this city bothers you so much, what are you still doing here? Like I'm having a hard time believing you're as righteous as you say you are. This is exactly the same struggle that the friends of Job had. They had a mindset that was governed by an idea that was something like this. If you're a good person, obedient to God, things will go well with you. If things do not go well with you, it's clear evidence that you have sinned somewhere. So, Job, your claim to be a righteous man is patently false because things are not going well with you. In other words, we are so good at judging by what we see and so bad at judging what really is. What really is, right? It would be so easy to look at Lot and say, Lot, this is just plain and simple. You say you're a righteous man. You're living in a wicked place. Your soul is so vexed about it. If you're really all that righteous, you'd get out. And listen, I don't know if there was a window of opportunity that way for Lot early on in his life. But I would say this, sometime later on in his life, it was probably something like, what do you want me to do? My daughters are engaged to men in this town. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep a family together. I, I, I'd like to be an influence on my, son and my sons-in-law and my future sons-in-law and make sure that my daughters have the best chance of having a happy married life that they could have. Where, where do you want me to go? We're all here now. My life is here now. Right? It's just so easy for one human being to look at another human being and just be certain of how much better they would do if they were in their circumstances and they were making the decisions. And we're just not as good at it as we think we are when you're the one living it in real, real time. One of the things that we talked a lot about in the marriage seminar was how important it is for two people just to have grace for each other. We have to learn to have grace for each other. Why? Because most of the time when you're sitting across from another human being, another believer, whether it's your wife or whether it's another member of the body of Christ, most of the time... They are not looking at you with some ulterior motive that they are delighting in their hearts to be evil. They're just doing the best they can with what they know. And they have a certain perspective. And it doesn't happen to be convenient for your perspective. And so there's going to be a problem. Right? It's, uh, listen, it's, it's, it's just, I'm saying all this to, to maybe just say this. We, we, we need to recognize that we're not always very good at judging correctly. We're not very good at this. There's a reason why there's one who is the judge and, and that that job should be left with him. That job should be left with him, okay? We can all read stories, we can all learn from stories, but be careful what you say about Lot because God said he's righteous. And man, with with how I feel about myself sometimes, I'm just really, really thankful that there's a man like Lot in the Bible who was called righteous by God because it really gives me some hope. Just really encourages my heart that he can call me righteous too, right? He can see me as righteous. All right, so that's, that's number one. This is all leading somewhere, so just bear with me for one more minute here. Here's the second point about Abraham going to war for Lot. Let us not forget the history between Abraham and Lot. Let us not forget the history between these two men. You remember the previous chapter? We're just one chapter away from Abraham, who was the leader of the family and had every right to choose the land that he would go to for himself, standing on a hill and saying to his nephew Lot, who was younger than him and under his leadership, look at the land, look at the land. Go wherever you want. Wherever you go, I'll go the opposite direction because our herds and our flocks are too many for this land and we shouldn't be fighting with each other. So let's separate. 
Remember a couple weeks ago, the importance of knowing when it's time to separate. Sometimes as believers, there are times to separate. It's not an easy thing, but there are times for this. So Lot stands on the hillside and he looks, and it would be something like this. He looks one way and goes, ah, that land's pretty rough, pretty rugged. Looks over there and he goes, wow, that's land for flocks. Well, it's me or my uncle. Me or my uncle. Hey, uncle, I think I'll take the good land. I don't know if you guys, that's what we, in my family, unk was a pretty common, hey, unk, you know. Unk, I'm taking the good land. You're going to have to deal with that land over there. I say that for this reason. You read the story, and for all the world, it appears to be a selfish choice that Lot makes. Abraham could easily have thought to himself, you know, I'm the one that God speaks to around here. I'm the one that's led our family this far. I'm the one that has the position of headship over this family. And I'm the one being gracious enough to stand here and say to you, let's not be at war with one another. How about you show me some goodwill back? And instead, Lot takes advantage of the opportunity to make a decision and chooses the good land for himself. Nearly every commentator you want to read is going to tell you that Lot made a selfish choice. And so the, the very logical question to ask is, why in the world should Abraham put himself, his household, and his men at risk to go rescue a nephew who's such an ingr a selfish ingrate? Why go rescue him? He made his own bed, let him lie in it. He chose the good land. He's got to deal with it. Hey, we believe in taking responsibility for your choices around here. You got yourself in trouble, didn't you? How about you start praying to God and let God talk to you the way he talks to me? Maybe he'll give you a way out. Abraham, without a second thought, puts himself in danger and says, the decision he made makes no difference. That's my nephew. I got to go rescue my nephew. He's one of ours. He's one of mine. I've got to go rescue my nephew. Can I just ask you to consider this real quickly? Let us not forget this. I am not going to in any way suggest there are not other times. that these are, these are complicated matters. But just please hear what is the normal way for one Christian to approach another, a, a situation in which another person has wronged them. Okay? The way we as Christians approach a situation in which somebody else has wronged them. Well, it starts in, in, in the Christian constitution which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, <laughs> okay? The Sermon on the Mount, the laws of the Christian kingdom. You want to know what to do when someone smacks you on the cheek? You turn the other one. When they see you and they take your coat, give them your cloak also. When they come and they ask you to go with them a mile, go with them too. Oh, listen, irrational, unnatural, and inconvenient. Absolutely. Welcome to the wonderful world of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless those who curse us, and we pray for those who wrongfully use us. And it goes against everything that we have within us, but this is what we're called to do. Matthew 5, 38 through 45, sit down, read them, listen to this, please hear this. How many of you would agree that when you're in circumstances where somebody has wronged you, there are always a hundred reasons why Matthew 5, 38 through 45 does not apply to you. Can I ask you, when in your life have you had the opportunity to apply those verses and said, this time I'm going to turn off my, my logic and I'm just going to obey. 
For many of us, the next time we turn the other cheek might be the first time we've ever turned the other cheek, really, without holding a grudge and really let it go, right? These are hard things for us to do, and yet they're what Scripture instructs us to do. We are instructed in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 5, 4 and 5, amongst, you know, in the rest of the chapter, what love looks like, what love really looks like. For example, we're just coming off a marriage seminar. Just, just the one about keeping no record of wrong would be enough to transform most people's lives. Amen? Just that one would be enough to completely change the course of people's relationships if we practice just one aspect of true love. To keep no record of wrong. Not to mention think the best. Love thinks no ill, thinks no evil, thinks the best of another person. These things will transform your life. They're just so hard to do. I don't know about you, but man, it is really easy. It is really easy to use wisdom, this is why it's in quotation marks, as an excuse for showing no grace. Let me give you a little, a little advice, some wisdom. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. That's worldly wisdom. But please hear this. You try to live that out in your marriage, you're in trouble. Because your spouse is going to fail you more than once. Amen? This is what it means that love bears all things and believes all things. You said you're sorry. You said you're sorry the last time you did it. Why should I believe you this time? Because that's your Christian responsibility to love. That's why. Your forgiveness, your willingness to, to believe the best in that person is not based upon their track record of performance. It's based on Jesus. Right? And when they say they're sorry, I blew it. And then they came back and say, I'm sorry, I blew it again. There's a Bible verse that speaks specifically to this. How often shall I forgive my brother if he offends me? Seven times? How about 70 times seven? But boy, we're so good at wisdom. We're just so smart. We're smarter than God. You know, you're a fool if you believe him more than once. They said they're sorry. When are you going to learn your lesson? You're getting taken advantage of. Yeah, that's right. Maybe you are. Or maybe we're just really bad at being the kind of people that God wants us to be and the person really is sorry and they just find themselves struggling with something over and over and over again and they're going to need a lot of forgiveness. Can I tell you something? I don't like how many times my family has heard me speak with an angry edge to my voice. The day they stop crediting the sincerity of my repentance will be the day they will no longer want to be in relationship with me. Can I tell you this? God has changed me. And I'm not the man I was when I was 25. And everybody that's anywhere close to me can say thank God for that. But I've got to tell you this. Every once in a while I realize I've still got a little ways to go. And I want you to know something. Part of the reason why God's gotten me as far as he has is because the last time I asked somebody to forgive me, they believed me. And they stood for me as if it was Christ in front of me saying, I forgive you. Because I'm going to tell you this honestly about myself. It is easy for me to struggle with the idea that God could actually forgive me. And when I see a human being do it in front of me, it becomes a picture to me of what Jesus can do. And when my wife can forgive me, I have hope that my Savior can forgive me. My brothers and sisters, these are not small issues. You see, to live the Christian life means to represent the presence of Jesus in a situation. 
We step in with grace because we are bringing the presence of Jesus into the situation. Love believes all things. Wisdom says, if they, if they say they're sorry once and they do it again, you're right to question whether they really mean it. How about they're just struggling? Do you hear this? We are so good at finding Christianized ways of approaching situations that are unchristlike. Because it's hard to believe all things. It's hard to forgive again. It's hard. Wisdom says it's irrational. Well, I just got to tell you, there really isn't anything rational about grace. There just really isn't. In fact, when Scripture tells us that there are times when you have to turn someone over to Satan, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5 tells us what the motivation behind it is. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, this is a last resort step, trusting that God will bring them back to himself. And you know what the beauty of the story is? You know what the beauty of the story is? Paul actually lived this out because in 2 Corinthians, what he says is this. What we did worked, and the brother we were correcting repented. So here's what Paul says. Bring him back into the fellowship, lest his heart get swallowed up with too much sorrow. In other words, once he repents and God forgives him, you restore him to fellowship. You bring him back into your life again. You bring him back in. In other words, when Jesus accepts him, you become the living embodiment of Jesus and you accept him as well. Don't let him get swallowed up in sorrow. Bring him back. Bring him back. It's a powerful truth. You see, the power of forgiveness and restoration means this. You and I are called to war for those who have wronged us. We would much rather war with those who have wronged us. We are supposed to go to war for those who have wronged us. You know why? Don't ever forget this. When you have truly been wronged by some, someone else, don't ever forget this. The wrong they have done is destroying them. Sin always destroys. It always destroys. It always damages. Sin is always something that is going to have to be dealt with at some point in time, and it's always painful. So when you see somebody, this is hard to do, but when someone has wronged you, to step back and to go, that wrong that they have done is something that's going to be harmful to them. And what I want is good for them. I'm going to war for them. I'm going to war for them. Why? Because that sin would be my enemy if it was in my life as well. And I would want someone to go to war for me. I'd want someone to go to battle for me. I've said this before. I will be eternally grateful to God for a wife who, who years ago looked at me and said, I just want to help you get to heaven. And I thought to myself, if every spouse in the world viewed their spouse as someone that they had been called by God to help get to heaven, we would be able to say, the issue is not the issue between us. It's the issue that you and I are fighting against together. Let me help you get to heaven. It's a precious thing. It's a precious thing to have someone who will fight with you, for you, to the end. Side by side, to the end, let's fight. All right? This is Abraham's war. Let me just say this quickly, and I'm, I'm going to close. I'm going to close very quickly. I want us to have a, a minute to pray. Let me just point two things out. The first one is, who are, we as, who are we fighting for as believers, New Testament believers? 
Well, in general categories, the scripture gives us two categories of people that you and I are fighting for. In 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, you and I are fighting for unbelievers. We're fighting for those who are perishing. I should be reading it, but I'm not going to take the time to. 2 Corinthians 4 is, is, don't you realize that Satan has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe, lest they should come to the light of the, of the glorious truth, the gospel? And, and that you and I are fighting uh, the, the words of the hymn because it's, it's a word and that King James comes straight out of this passage. They are perishing in their sin. And so some hymn writer, I don't know who it was, we could look it up in the hymn book, sat down one day and wrote a hymn called Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. We sang it this morning, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. Right? This is our call. It's a call to war. The Great Commission is a call to war. It's a call to fight for those who are perishing. To enter into spiritual battle for those who are perishing. Fight against the darkness that blinds them and would send them straight to hell. You and I are called to fight that war. We're fighting for unbelievers. Notice in this passage, if you... If you well, I'm just going to do it really fast. In this passage, please jot down the passage and read it later. We are appointed to this war. We're an appointed people. We're appointed to it. Secondly, it, it demands selfless character and conduct. The only thing I'll say about that right now is this very quickly. How many of you agree that when an unbeliever says, well, I don't want to become a Christian, Christians are just hypocrites. How many of you would agree that often that's just an excuse? Amen? But how many of you know that sometimes we Christians are our own worst billboards? Amen? And we just have to face the fact that, you know, I have multiple people in my life that were raised in church that are struggling with their faith because... They can't stand what they experienced at church. We cut off our own noses to spite our faces. You want to know something? You, our sister Karna mentioned it. Too often our children are leaving. You want to know something? You, you want your children to stay in the faith? How about you treat and talk about other Christians nicely? Just go home and tear, tear your brother and sister up. And I'll guarantee you, your children will have a serious moral situation to deal with later on. You know why? Because you were a bad advertisement for the, the church of Jesus, for the people of God. That's why. Because it's... Because we don't realize that the young, impressionable ones that aren't as wise and sophisticated as we are to be good Christians and talk nasty about people around us. I can be a Christian and do this at the same time. They're actually more, more, more simple and honest than we are, and it puts them in a crisis of faith. Why would I want to be a, a Christian if that's what Christians are like? Christians can't even get along. My brothers and sisters, this is serious business. It's really serious business that you and I know how to love each other, listen, with all of our faults because we have them. And we fight for unbelievers with the proclamation of the gospel. With the proclamation of the gospel, we proclaim the gospel. This is what we've been called to do. All right. The other group of people that we fight for is we fight for believers. Now, I put up here an extreme case. Those who are ensnared. Um, 2 Timothy, I'm going to take, the, take one second to read it. 2 Timothy 2 is a, is a very challenging passage. It's a very challenging scripture. We dealt with this at some length last year, but let me just read it quickly, these three verses. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, 
able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may, get, may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. To do his will. Listen. This is an extreme case. A brother or sister who is ensnared. Ensnared. What does it mean to be ensnared? It means to be trapped. It means to be stuck. So, I don't... Well, I'm going to be super careful, but I'm just going to say it this way. The number of times... the number of times that I have had a young man come to me and say, I am struggling with my moral life. I can't seem to be able to control my eyes. I have victory for a few days. I have victory for a brief amount of time. And I fall back into it again. I'm stuck. You know what they're saying? They're trapped. They're ensnared. And listen to this. Please hear this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Why? Because the hope is that God will give them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil because they've been taken captive by him and they're doing his will. You're in a spiritual war. And in an issue like that, we seem to be able to see it pretty clearly. And I think most of us would would sit across the table from someone that had tears pouring down their eyes and we would have compassion on them and we would be driven to, to help them and to heal them, right? But when he's your husband, it's hard. It's hard. Man, that hurts, right? Listen, I am touching on something this morning, and, and this, is, uh, th- th- this particular subject is not intended and it almost doesn't matter. The point is this. We have to get a mindset in the body of Christ that is something like this. I will go to battle for my brother or sister. You give me a chance and I'm there. You let me know there's a war on and I will be by your side. If it means I got to get on my knees and I've got to pray, I'll get on my knees and I will pray and I will intercede for you. I'm on your side. I will fight for you. 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 This is a profound thing that we have been called to do because there are souls that hang in the balance. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that hang in the balance, that need someone to go to war for them, that need someone to fight for them because they're getting pummeled by themselves. They're getting beat by themselves. Can I ask you honestly, How many of you know yourself well enough to know that there is a deep hunger in your heart for someone to be by your side and stay by your side no matter what? Like, please hear this. It's a scary thing. But I I, I think this is true of most believers. It was well stated in our marriage seminar the last couple of days. I do believe this is true. Most of us, regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit of God. We want what is right. We want it. 
even when we also want something that's wrong, the flesh craves some things. Inside of us, there's that part of us that was born again by the Spirit of God, and we want what is right. And often, it's just the scariest thing in the world to wonder, will somebody stay by my side and fight this thing out to the end? Because I so desperately want to please Jesus. And I so desperately need help. But what will happen if I ask somebody to fight with me? By my side, what will happen? My brothers and sisters, to have someone who fights for you is one of the most precious gifts God can ever give to you. For Lot, listen, I don't know what this is like. This will be my, my, my way of picturing it. For Lot... To, to, to have been laying there that night as a slave. And all of a sudden, he's awakened in the middle of the night hearing the sounds of war. I wonder if it was something like this. You know, after the choices I made, I can't believe my uncle has come to set me free. How cool is it that Uncle Abraham showed up and he's going to get me out of this mess that I'm in. He came to fight for me. He came to fight for me. I mean, it's an incredible thing to have someone who comes to fight for you. It's incredible to have that on your side. I'm going to skip all of that and close with this. There's two things that happen in our lives and I just want to close making this clear. I, I like the story of Abraham because as, I, as I'm reading it, it's just all really neat and tidy. Like, Lot gets captured, Abraham shows up, kills a bunch of people, goes to war. It's all done in a night. Bada-bing, bada-bang, bada-boom. Lot, his wife, his females, his possessions, his people, it's all recovered and it's done. We can all go back to normal life one night. Boy, I wish life was like that. Don't you? Just one night. You've got to just battle through it one night and it's done. Please hear this. These two things are both true. I hope you'll understand what I mean. Abraham fleed, freed Lot in one night. It was a, there's a little bit difference, a little bit of difference between spiritual wars and physical, sometimes physical battles take a long time, but this one was quick. Here's the point. There's two, there's two parts to a spiritual battle. One part is crisis. What do I mean by crisis? I mean a key circumstance or a God encounter that brings a moment of deliverance. And then there's process. And that's the ongoing, very often painful work of birthing into freedom. And here's what happens. These two things are always involved side by side. How many of you have ever found that you have some encounter with God and something wonderful happens? And it might be a month later, or it might be a year later, but you get tested there again. And you realize, I've got to practice what it means to walk out this encounter I had with God. And then sometimes it happens in the reverse. Sometimes it's like there's this long, hard process and process and process and struggle, and it's a battle, and it's a battle and battle. And then all of a sudden, you come to this moment, and God does something powerful. And it's like, whew. Finally, there was a breakthrough. Please hear this. Oh, we are such creatures of our theology sometimes. There are some people who wouldn't believe in a deliverance for anything in the world. Oh, that's that Pentecostal, charismatic craziness, wackadoo. They believe in healing and they believe in instantaneous everything and it's just escapism. I want you to hear this. God still delivers people. The power of the Holy Spirit 
sets people free. And I got to tell you, I don't know the rhyme or reason for it because I'm not him. But I got to tell you, there are some people that just seem to get whomped by the Holy Spirit and they are free. And when they're free, they're free. And I got to tell you, man, when that happens, it is a beautiful thing. Lord, may it happen more often. Some of us have gotten so religious that we forget that the Holy Spirit can step into our lives that way, and we've stopped asking for him to. We're not even open to him. We wouldn't recognize him if he showed up. Listen to this. I don't know if this is one of those moments. All I know, if I'm going to throw out there a picture from Scripture, is that every once in a while, there's an angel stirring the water, and you better jump in when the water's stirring. Because if you do... He's going to do something powerful in your life. You need to know this. There are moments in time when it is vital to respond to what the Holy Spirit tells you in that moment because these are moments of grace in which he's ready to breathe a life into you that was not there before. I'm not telling you there's going to be no battle afterwards and no process. I'm just telling you that it's like turbocharging your life because the Holy Spirit is present to touch you in that moment. But I got to tell you this, the flip side of that is, if you're sitting around all day just waiting for deliverance, you better get in the process. You wake up one day and realize, how'd I get here? This isn't right. You better start getting out. You don't wait, you obey. And here's what you find. As you obey, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and he goes to work and he becomes part of the process of deliverance in your life. And these two things happen side by side in us. Welcome, invite, seek after those moments when the Holy Spirit is present to deliver. And obey and repent. Listen to this, repent hard. Repent hard. When there's sin in your life, you don't sit around and say, someday the Holy Spirit will convict me of it, and I'm sorry, and someday, I'll, I'll, someday, someday. No, get on your knees and say you're sorry. God, I have sinned. And listen to this. And if your heart's not broken, get on your knees and say, my heart's not broken. I don't hurt over it. And God, it's a sin that I don't hurt over it. Teach my heart to hurt over it. I'm calloused. I'm hard. God, forgive me. Break through in my life. Give me the gift of repentance. Give me the gift of tears again. Because I need to cry. I need to repent. It's not a game. It's a war. It's a war. Crisis and process happen side by side. We need to invite the Holy Spirit. We need to invite the Holy Spirit in those moments, and we need to invite him to sustain us in the long haul. Amen? And please hear this. And we got to fight for each other. we got to fight for each other. My brothers and sisters, this is no game. There is an adversary who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy, and he's working overtime to do it. He wants to ruin your marriage. He wants to ruin your children. He wants to ruin your fellowship. He wants to ruin your, your extended family. He wants to ruin your grandchildren. He wants to ruin your, your testimony. He wants to ruin your... He wants to ruin your... He wants to ruin it. He wants to ruin it. He wants to ruin it. And you and I have the privilege of fighting for each other. May God give you the gift of someone in your life that if you, if you call them to pray, they will hit the floor. May God give you that gift. May God give you the gift of someone who, when they wake up at 3 a.m., has your name on their mind, and they're crying out to God on your behalf in the middle of the night. May God give you the gift of someone who will never leave your side, but will help you get to heaven. May God, may God give you the gift of someone who believes in you when you don't believe in yourself who has hope that God can deliver when you're not sure he can. May God give you the gift of a true brother, of a true sister who will fight for you. And may God make me a true gift to somebody. Amen? And may God make me a true gift to somebody.
because we're all fighting hard. <laughs> and we all need somebody to fight by our side. Amen? It's a powerful story. And these are difficult truths to put into place. Sometimes you're going to have to go to uncomfortable places and you're going to have to have uncomfortable conversations. The question is, in your heart of hearts, are you fighting with them, quarrelsomely, or are you fighting for them? I want to rescue my brother. I want to fight for him. Amen? May the Lord help us. If you're here this morning and there's a place where you just say, I need one of those breakthrough thingies that you're talking about. I haven't seen a crisis. I don't mean a crisis. Like, I, mean, I mean a catalyst moment. A, a, crux, a, a, a crisis moment where my heart is so acted upon by the Holy Spirit that something gets turbocharged in my life right now. I got to tell you, some crisis moments are downright wickedly painful. Because, because sometimes crisis moments are times when God shows you something about yourself that is really hard to look at. But it's a moment in which he's coming to you in grace and saying, I'm going to transform you into the image of my son. I'm not showing you this for despair. I'm showing you this for transformation. We need a good old-fashioned crisis, a, a, an altar. And then some of us are just whipped and we just need to say, Lord, I just need you to help me get back in the process. I, I, I just kind of quit. I gave up. Get back in the fight. Get back in the fight. Amen? Would you bow with me? Would you just take a moment to pray? However, wherever. I told you at the beginning, this is not the complete picture. So, you know, it doesn't apply in perfectly in every situation. But it's general ideas. These concepts are strong parts of what it means to be a believer. Fight, fight for the perishing, fight for the ensnared. We fight for unbelievers. We fight for, for our brothers and sisters. They're your brother or sister. That's your family. You go to war for them. You fight. You fight. You fight hard. Who do you need to fight for right now? Or maybe you just need to put your heart before God and say, Lord, there's something in me that... Needs, needs some Holy Spirit intervention right now. Lord, come and help me right now. Would you take a moment to respond however the Lord would lead you to respond? We're going to have a moment of quiet as we, uh, as we pray. I don't know the song well enough to sing the verses, but I think I can manage to squeak out the chorus of it. And I'm just going to ask you to take a second to sing this with me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. 
one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. One more time. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need Please, one more time. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God. How I need you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, some of us need the gift of tears, the gift of repentance. So I just ask that you would move upon our hearts as uncomfortable as it will be. Break us again. Give us the gift of softness, even if it means feeling things we don't want to have to feel. Forgive us for the ways that we have hardened our hearts against you, for the ways that we have dug in our heels. Forgive us. Soften our hearts before you. Lord, some of us need the gift of healing because there are deep pains that we hold in our hearts, and we need the gift of, of forgiveness. We need the gift of being able to forgive ourselves. We need the gift of being able to forgive someone else. Lord, there are all sorts of wars that go on in the hearts of your people. Some of us have relationships that need to be healed. Lord, we have ascribed wrong motives to nothing but different perspectives. Lord, I have to admit there are those cases where it's not differences of perspective, where there is something deeply selfish and evil that resides in a human heart. And no amount of generosity will, will fix it. It just has to have a, a, a repentance, a conviction that takes place. So Lord, if there's a, if there's a, 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 a deeply rooted self or sin orientation in us, Lord, just expose it, bring it out, and help us to repent. But Lord, where there's differences of perspective and a need for healing, where there has been pain that is needless, where we're just two ships passing in the night and we can't understand each other, I ask that you would intervene with a flood of grace, uh, the, the gift of willingness, Lord, the gift of generosity, the gift of self-sacrifice, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of, 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 uh, of kindness. Lord, I pray that we would step back into that place of it's just the snare of the evil one. And there needs to be a recovering from that snare. So Lord, I'm going to be, I'm going to be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient, meek. Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts, that you would speak to us. Lord, I, I, I do pray that you would both give us the gift of people that will fight for us and that you would give us the privilege of being people that someone counts on to fight for them. Lord, use us in each other's lives that way. Dear Jesus, please, I just close just asking you Lord, do I dare just ask, would your spirit break through? Would you touch some heart that needs to be touched this morning? Would you break through 
by the power of your Holy Spirit. Touch your people once again. Deliver us from our coldness, from our religious habits, and bring us into the life, the dangerous and powerful life of a risen and resurrected Savior. Exciting, exciting and the supreme adventure of challenge. Pray that you'd bring us through, Lord, by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen, 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 amen. May the Lord be with you. May his grace be with you. May his strength be with you. In Jesus' name, have a great week. Lord, I come. I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one.